the way, have you discovered that sometimes things don't go as we expect them to go? Have you discovered that in life? And uh, sometimes it's funny, right? Sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. I was reminded of that. We were moving last weekend. And uh, by the way, this is one of the things I've learned since relocating from California back to the Triangle. This is valuable. You need to file this away. The further south you move in the Triangle, the friendlier people are. I'll just let you know that. When we first moved here, we moved to Cary, which we all know is a containment area for relocated Yankees. And, uh, and sure enough, we had neighbors from Boston. And uh, one night after a small group, it was a Thursday night, about 8.30, the police pulled up in front of my house. And uh, I said, hey, Mr. Officer, what are you doing? He said, well, your neighbors called the police, said you're having a wild party. And I said, wow, that's a good small group right there when you're getting the police called on you, right? Right? But uh, you know what? It was, it, was, it was Cary, a lot of relocated Yankees. But it's okay. So then we moved a little further south to Apex, the peak of good living, right? And some of the friendliest people I've ever met in my life in Apex. Well, this past week, we moved even further south, and now we are Holly Springers. And I got to tell you, I didn't know Apexers could be outdone, but in Holly Springs, you stump your toe, they'll bring you meals for a month. You know what I'm saying right there? And I told her, what if we would have moved to Fuquay just a little bit further south? I mean, good graces, they've been showing up at your front door with their favorite goat to give to you. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> but, you know, we were moving, and you, Laura is very systematic. She had it all planned out. We were going to close at 1.30 on Thursday and move in on Friday, and all these deliveries were just scheduled for Friday. Well, we found out on Thursday we weren't going to close till 1.30 on Friday, which meant Laura said, you have to be out at the house on Friday morning at 8 o'clock to start receiving all the stuff that's going to be delivered to our house that we don't own. And I said, well, honey, what am I going to do with all this stuff? She says, good luck, good luck. And, uh, in fact, I see him sitting back here. Brian Barber's got a box truck. And I called him. I said, can I use your truck? And I got out there at 8 o'clock Friday morning, and these delivery trucks with refrigerators and things would pull up, and they would pull into the driveway. And you should have seen me explain it to these movers. Hey, listen, don't put it in the house. Put it in the back of my truck. I throw the door up, and they're looking at me like, man, I'm not losing my job. Who are you? I said, that's going to be my house in a few days or in a few hours, one of these days. And it was the funniest thing in the world, but it just didn't go as we expected it to go. We finally got in. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's not. For example, it's not all that funny when you have a dream for your life. Or maybe a dream for your marriage, your children, your finances, your career, maybe your education. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize, wow, it's not going to happen. For example, it's when you and your spouse realize for the first time that you're not going to live happily ever after. It's not going to happen. Or it's when you realize during the engagement that the wedding isn't going to happen. Or it's when you realize or discover while you're sitting in the doctor's office that you're not going to have children. Or maybe you're sitting in your accountant and you realize that you're not going to have this business. This business you spent your entire life building that you're going to have to actually shut it down. It's when you dream of getting into a certain school, but then you realize you're not going to get into that school that you'd always dreamed of getting into. Most of us have lived long enough to have it hit us. Well, the hope, the dream that I had for this life is just not going to happen. Well, we're in this series that we're calling Life as We Know It. Uh, and if you're in a small group, you've had the opportunities to open up your life and share some of the stories of your life, stories of beginnings, stories of obstacles. And I've heard incredible reports coming back from our small groups as you guys are getting intimate in a way of getting to know one another, opening up your lives to each other like never before. And it's just been absolutely incredible. And even if you're not in a small group, at all of our campuses, we have a story wall here at the Raleigh campuses right out to the right where you can go and take a piece of paper and you can write a story about your life and you will be amazed at how encouraging it can be to other people and you can put it right there on that wall 
But as we're telling our stories, we're seeing this lived out in the life of David. And this weekend, we're going to look at a little-known but fascinating story about David. And in this story, we find David sitting on the back of a donkey, and he's heading out of Jerusalem. And it's later on in his life, and on the back of this donkey heading out of Jerusalem, he realizes, wow, my dream isn't going to come true. My hope isn't going to be realized. And in what must have been an overwhelming emotion and despair, we're going to learn some truths that I believe will help us experience the grace of God in our life, maybe like we've never experienced it before. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Let me give you just a little bit of a background. I have a horrendous sore throat this morning, but we're going to get through this together. And so if I sound a little raspy or a little short, it's, it's just like razor blades down there this morning, okay? 2 Samuel chapter 5. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen or you can go to your Get Hope app. But I want to give you a decade of history in just a couple of minutes. Probably one of the more well-known stories in the life of David had to do with Bathsheba. You remember that David, when he should have been away at war with his army, decided to stay back at the palace. And he's walking around on the roof of his palace. And he looks over his neighbor's fence. And he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath. Her name is Bathsheba. And the Bible tells us that David lusted for her. And he invited her over to the palace. And she arrived. And they slept together. David committed adultery with her. A few weeks later, he discovered that she was pregnant. And to cover it all up, he had her husband killed while he was away in battle. And David's thinking, now with, with, with her husband out of the way, I'll just take Bathsheba as my wife and no one will ever know about it. But you know what? It was adultery that led to murder and it was a big, big mess. And as hard as it is to imagine, you would think it doesn't get any worse than that. Things went from bad to worse for David because consequences and as a result of this affair, as a result of this murder, David's family began to unravel. And that's a problem because David had been promised by God that his line on the throne was going to remain. That one of his sons was going to follow him on the throne. In fact, this is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. He says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That is the promise. That was the hope that David was hanging his head on. And David naturally assumed that Amnon, his first son, his firstborn son, would follow him on the throne. That was protocol in those days. But there was a problem. Remember I said the family began to fall apart. It began to unravel. Amnon fell in love with his half-sister. Her name was Tamar. And she was David's daughter by another marriage. So Amnon falls in love with his stepsister. One day he fakes being sick. He stays in his bed. Tamar, thinking she's being a good stepsister, brings him lunch. And he attacks her and he rapes her. And David hears about it, but he doesn't do anything about it. But when Absalom, who is David's third-born son, also Tamar's blood brother, when Absalom hears about it, that Amnon has raped his sister, as you can imagine, he is absolutely furious, but he is also very, very patient. And he just sits back, and he allows two years to go by until things settle down. And then after waiting for two years, Absalom plans this big dinner party. And he invites all of his brothers and all of his sisters. And at this party, in front of all of his siblings, Absalom kills Amnon for raping his sister. And then Absalom flees Jerusalem. And David hears about the murder, but understand, now he's between a rock and a hard place because, see, his firstborn, Amnon, has been murdered by Absalom, but Absalom is the apple of his eye. Absalom is his favorite person on earth. So once again, David just chooses to do nothing. Three more years go by, and David thinks that things have settled down. And so he invites Absalom back to Jerusalem. 
and Absalom returns, but David will not see him and he will not talk to him. Two more years go by. And David finally restores Absalom to the inner circle. And I'm sure that he, he felt that by restoring Absalom, one day he would sit on the throne. One day he would be the king. So he brings Absalom back to the palace. Four more years go by. Things seem to be working out, at least on the surface. But what David doesn't realize is that Absalom, he still has all of this unresolved, all of this pent-up anger against his dad. And eventually Absalom begins secretly to recruit people not to follow his dad, but to follow him. This is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4. Absalom would say to the people, hey, if only I was the appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or a case could come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. And he began to work the people, work the crowd, saying, you know what, I would be a phenomenal judge. I would be, one day maybe I can rule this land, and life will be as it's supposed to be. And finally, when you get to verse 6, it says, Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king. In other words, as they came to his dad asking for justice. And so he stole. The Hebrew word is won. He won the hearts of the people of Israel. And even though the people of Israel, they respected David, they absolutely loved Absalom. And Absalom knew this. And he was reading the polls. <laughs> and so he decides that he's going to come up with a plan to take the throne away from his father. Let's read the story, 2 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 10. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied, had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests, and they went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. And so the conspiracy gained strength, and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, your servants are ready to do whatever our Lord the king chooses. I mean, David, if you want us to go to war with Absalom, we'll go to war with Absalom. We'll cut his throat so fast he won't know it till he sneezes. That's what we'll do, right? But if you want to flee, we'll flee. So you'll notice the last part of the verse, the king set out with his entire household following. And so David chooses to leave Jerusalem. It's because in this moment he realizes the situation I'm in, there are no good options. I mean, if he goes to war with Absalom, only one of three things can happen. Either David will be killed, Absalom will be killed, maybe they will both be killed, and even if he captures Absalom alive, David faces the reality of having to execute his own son, the son that he loves more than anything in the world. He will have to execute him for treason. And David realizes there are no good options. So David and the family, they scramble around the palace and they pack up all their valuables and they load up their mules and their donkeys and their horses and their wagons and they head out of Jerusalem. And it tells us that the people line the streets and they weep as their once great king flees for his life from his own son. And you know that as David is riding out of town on the back of that donkey, he has to be thinking, God, how in the world did this happen? How did it ever come to this. I mean, God, we worked through all the hard stuff. We got through the Saul years. 
We got through the adultery. We got through the murder issues. And I'm at the place in my life where I should be just stepping down and happily turning over the throne to my son Absalom. And here he is running me out of town. How did this ever happen, God? How did we ever get here? Because there is no way that anything good can come out of this. And in the midst of this overwhelming situation, David gives us a truth that sheds some insight into the ways of God. But before I look at that truth, I want to talk to you for a minute. Because some of you listening right now, you can relate to David. You can relate to his emotions. Because you maybe have recently come to that point where you realize that your dreams, your hopes, they're not going to be realized. That relationship isn't going to work. Your marriage isn't going to work out. You're not going to get that job. You're not going to get that promotion. You're not going to beat that illness. You're not going to get into that school. Your kids aren't going to turn out the way you thought they would turn out. And when we get to a point like that, and we are faced with that hard, cold reality, there's a sense of frustration, and there's a, a sense of disappointment in our lives. And when, when the frustration and the disappointment begins to fade, often it's followed by anger, and we get mad. Because we think deep inside, life just isn't supposed to be this way, right? And you get that. Maybe you're here this weekend and you're single and you've been saving your whole life. You've been saving yourself for the right person. But you're sitting here this weekend, now you're 40, maybe 45. And you're thinking, God, I've done it your way every step of the way. But I don't want to be single forever. God, what's going on? What's the payoff? What's the point? Or maybe you're sitting here and, 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 and you took your vows seriously and you remained faithful to your spouse, but your spouse cheated. And you're sitting here this weekend either facing a divorce or fresh off a divorce and you're thinking, yeah, I did everything I was supposed to do the right way. God, what's the point? Or maybe, maybe you wouldn't compromise your integrity when your boss asked you to. And as a result of that, you lost your job. And this weekend you're sitting here unemployed thinking, yeah, I did the right thing. What's the point? And you're frustrated. And then that frustration has turned to anger. And as that anger boils over, there's a part of us that wants to say, wow, if this, is if this is what it's like to be in a relationship with God, just forget it. I mean, God, seriously, after all my faithfulness, after all my service and commitment, if this is the way you're going to reward me, God, I am done. And I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Who cares what the consequences are? Because there's no way it can be any worse than this. Ever felt like that? I can find a wife, I can find a husband, I can find a spouse, I can find a job. I'll just take back control of my life. I'll do whatever it is I want to do because how can it get any worse? Here's the problem when we respond that way. It still doesn't put our shattered dreams back together. It still doesn't put our shattered world back together. It doesn't restore what we've lost. It doesn't heal our hurts. In fact, you know what it does? It just sends us down a road that ultimately leads to more pain, more hurt, more consequences, and it leaves us in the latter years of our life cynical, bitter, broken, angry. And I think it's understandable why we go down that road because we've lost our dream. We've lost our hope. We've lost what's important to us. Now, fortunately for David, he's been there before. As Donnie pointed out last week, you know, David came off of that great victory with Goliath. And he thought things were going to be awesome. And as he comes back into the streets of Jerusalem, the people are singing, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his ten thousands, and Saul's in the palace, and he hears that, and he's thinking, hmm, that's 9,000 off. And he hates David. And he tries to kill David. 
And David will be doing his thing, serving Saul, and all of a sudden he's dodging a spear. And finally got to the point where David thought, God, if this is the best you can do, I think I'll just take control of my own life. And he flees Jerusalem for the first time, and he heads down to a city called Nob. And he goes, he goes to see the priest. His name is Ahimelech. It's, you can always remember it. It's Ahimelech, Ahimelech, Ahimelech. But it's Ahimelech. That's just something free I just throw in there when I'm delirious, okay? He goes to this priest named Ahimelech, and he lies to Ahimelech. He doesn't say that he's fleeing for his life from King Saul. He says, I'm on a mission for Saul. And he asks for some food. And he asks for a weapon. And Ahimelech says, yeah, you're representing Saul. Here's a sword. And he gives him some food to eat from the temple. And then later on, Saul shows up through the city of Nob, hunting down David, and he asks Ahimelech, have you seen David? And he says, yeah, yeah, I gave him some food, I gave him a sword. And Saul is so angry. Now, Ahimelech, he doesn't realize that David lied. But Saul is so angry, Saul and his men kill 85 priests in the city of Nob. And I'm not sure David ever got over that. And now here he is years later heading out of Jerusalem for the second time. And he knows one thing for sure. He knows this time I am not turning my back on God. This time I am not losing my hope in God. Because I've been there before. I've been down that road before. I know how that ended. So what does David do? How does he respond? 2 Samuel 15 verse 23 says, The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok, he was a priest, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, they set down the Ark of the Covenant, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. By the way, what was the Ark of the Covenant? Most of you have seen the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, so you have some kind of idea what it is. But literally, it goes all the way back to Moses. After 430 years being slaves, remember Moses delivered, led the people, the Hebrew people, to freedom. But think about this. They had never had the opportunity to know how to worship God. And so God, through Moses, had to teach the Hebrew people how to worship him. And, and since they couldn't build a temple, remember, they were nomads, God gave them instructions for what was the tabernacle. And it was a place where they could worship God. And it was portable, it was like a tent so they could roll it up and take it with them. And then they could set it up and they could worship God. And it wasn't fancy. There was an outer court about 150 feet by about 75 feet. And in the middle was what was called the tent of meetings. And in this tent of meetings, there were several articles of furniture that were very crucial in this worship process. But one of them was a little chest, not very big, about 45 inches long, about 27 inches deep, about 27 inches wide. And inside of this little chest, this box... There were three different articles. There was a jar of manna to remind them of how God miraculously fed them in the wilderness. There was Aaron's rod that budded. Great story. You can read about it in the book of Numbers. And then there were the original Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. And they were all contained in this chest. And then on top of the chest, there was a solid gold slab. It was known as the mercy seat. And on each end was an angel or a cherub with his wings outstretched. And it tells us that it was right there on the mercy seat that the glory of God or the presence of God resided. Now think about this. That means that everywhere that the Ark of the Covenant went, God went. And just so you know, this word Ark in the Hebrew, it literally means box. So at this time in history, as strange as it sounds, the Hebrew people really worshipped God in the box. That's basically what was going on here. And it means that whoever had the box was in good shape. 
So when you went into battle, you made sure you had God in the box. Because if you had God in the box, you won. In fact, there's some great stories. Just go home and read through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And you'll see that wherever the box was, good things happened. Well, during the time of David, there still was no permanent temple. David wanted to build a temple for God. That was one of his hopes, one of his dreams. God said no. But there wasn't a permanent place. So the, so the ark or God in the box was still a big deal. So think about this. David's guys are packing up David to leave Jerusalem. This is what they're thinking. We're taking the box with us. We may leave our wives. We may leave our children. We may leave our Corvettes and our Harleys, but we are taking the box with us because whoever has the box wins, right? So they pick up the Ark of the Covenant. They start hauling it out of Jerusalem. And as they're making their way out of Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, David looks at the Ark and it dawns on him what's happening. And he stops everything. He says, stop. Stop. And he looks at the man carrying the box and he says, take the ark back to Jerusalem. And his entourage is like, wait a minute, David. You're sending God back to Jerusalem? And David's like, yes, send it back. And I'm sure they're thinking, can we go with him? You know, because they know, right? Now, why would David do that? David made that decision because he realized as he was leaving the city under these circumstances, he realized he was trying to manipulate the situation. He realized he was trying to get back in control. See, he knew whoever had the box wins. And all of a sudden it hit him. That's not what this is all about. Look what it says. Listen to what he says in verse 25. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. Now look at this. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, David says, then I am ready. Look at this. Here's the key. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Now I'm just going to warn you that this is going to sound like an oversimplified answer to your specific issue this morning, to your specific situation, but you got to understand, at the end of the day, this is the answer. This is what David is basically saying. God, here are my plans. Here are my hopes. God, here are my dreams. This is what I assumed you were going to do in my life. But God, I want you to take all these things. I want you to take my plans, my hopes, my dreams, and I want you to do with them whatever you want to do. God, not my will. Your will be done. God, you do whatever you need to do to me. I am sending the box back. And I'm going to cast all my cares, all my hopes, all my dreams. God, I'm going to cast my life upon your providential grace. And if you read the rest of the story, I hope you will, you'll discover that decision created the context, the environment for God to actually step in and fulfill his promise to David. In fact, when David made this decision... He avoided three mistakes that we often make as Christians on the journey that God is taking us on. Here's the first one. David didn't attach his hope in God to the fulfillment of his dreams. In other words, hey, it wasn't like, hey, if my dreams go away, then my hope in God goes away. You ever did that? God, I trusted in you. You didn't come through the way I thought you were going to come through. I don't really trust you anymore. He didn't do that. He didn't. He avoided that mistake. Here's the second mistake he avoided. He didn't attach his hope in God to his assumptions about how God would fulfill his promise. 
You see, just like with us, David had a promise from God, and the promise was one of his sons was going to sit on the throne. And just like with us, David assumed he knew how God was going to fulfill that promise. He assumed it would be his firstborn, Amnon. And if for some reason that fell through, then he had Absalom waiting in the wings. But fortunately for David, he didn't attach his hope to God in God to his assumptions about how God was actually over time going to fulfill that promise. In other words, just because it didn't go down the way David assumed it would go down, he didn't lose hope in God's ability to fulfill the promise. Now, this is, a, this is kind of an important place to just stop and ask you a question. What has God promised you? What is his promise to you? It's actually pretty simple. This is what God has promised you. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Regardless of the journey I take you on, regardless of the plan that I have for your life, God says, you, you can always count on this. This is your hope. I will never, ever leave you, and I will never, ever forsake you. But what does that look like? Well, in most of our minds, it looks like this. It means we're going to be healthy. It means our kids are going to grow up healthy. It means that one day we're going to get married and our marriage is going to stay together. It means that our kids will grow up and they'll do all the things that we envision them doing. It means we'll get to go to the school of our choice. It means when we get out of school, we'll have a fulfilling job and enough money and life will be great. And those are the assumptions that most of us attach to God's promise. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. But I'm going to tell you, it is a huge mistake to assume that. Sure, we have visions for our life. We have ideas of what our life should be like. We have a future that we're planning for. We have hopes and dreams. But see, by this point in David's life, because he's older and because he's wiser, he wasn't like, God, you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. He wasn't like, you didn't do it the way I thought you were going to do it, so God, I don't trust you. Mm -mm. He hadn't attached his hope in God to his assumptions about how God eventually would fulfill his promise. But here's the third one. David didn't take matters into his own hands and try to manipulate the situation. I don't know about you guys, but most of us are pretty capable people. And if I put my mind to it, I've learned I'm an incredible manipulator. Some people would call it leadership, but I'm an incredible manipulator. And I often, at the end of the day, can accomplish what I think God wants us to accomplish. Or maybe what he wants me to accomplish. But then there's that empty feeling when you lay in bed at night and you think, did God really do that? Or did I do that? David didn't take matters into his own hands and try to manipulate. He could have. He could have. He could have kept God in the box. He could have sent his army back into Jerusalem. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He looked at the ark and said, send it back. I'll let God sort it all out. And if God in his providential grace decides to send me back to Jerusalem and reestablish me on the throne, so be it. If he decides not to, so be it. And I'm okay with that. And some of you are thinking that sounds like fatalism. You're like, whatever happens, happens, right? It's not it at all. You know what it is? It's just putting your hope and trust in God. It's praying for God to give you a vision for your life, your family, your marriage, your career. Your schooling, when God gives you that vision, you go after it with all your heart, you go after it with all your might, and you say, God, this is what I'm going for. God, this is what I'm going after. But God, here's the bottom line. At the end of the day, you do to me whatever you need to do. Not my will, not my plans, not my dreams, 
yours be done. Because God, at the end of the day, that's where I'm placing my hope. So if you're sitting here this weekend and you're thinking, man, my life is horrible and it just has not played out the way I thought it was going to play out, you have an option. You can turn your back on God. You can let your emotions sweep you into self-destructive behaviors and relationships. Or you have the option of saying, just like the people sitting around you this weekend who lost their spouse but didn't lose hope. Or just like the people sitting around you this weekend that lost a child but they didn't lose hope. Or just like the people sitting around you this weekend who've lost relationships and maybe an inheritance and they've lost their genes. Just like the people sitting around you who've lost all kinds of things but they haven't lost hope. You have the option of saying, God, this really stinks. And my life is playing out. It is the opposite, God, of what I had hoped for and what I had dreamed of. But God, you do to me whatever you need to do. But God, I want you to understand something. Whatever you choose to do, I am not going to turn my back on you because I know where that ends up. So you do to me whatever you need to do. My hope is in you. Not in my circumstances, not in my relationships, not in my wealth, not in my education. God, at the end of the day, my hope is in you. It's not fatalism. It's simply finding your hope in a sovereign God. And whatever happens in our lives, although we may never understand it, and although it may not be the way we would have ever designed it, we accept it as coming from the hand of a loving Father. And that's where you get your hope you got to get there you got to get there let's bow our heads together let's just let me just ask you a question the one thing I love about hope is we all come from so many various backgrounds and our journeys are so different and I know that a lot of broken people walk through the doors of this place well, let me just ask you, what's happened on your journey that's caused you to lose hope? Let me just say this. You have no control over the journey that God chooses to take you on in this life. You have no control over the plan that he has designed for you. What you do have control over is how you respond. I will tell you this from experience. The scariest prayer you will ever pray in your life is this. God, this is what I want to happen in my life. This is what I want to happen in my family. This is what I want to happen in my career. But God, you do to me what you need to do. Not my will, but your will. I tell you what, when you get there, you'll find peace, but you've got to get there. So I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, we're going to quietly dismiss, and we have communion upstairs in, in the chapel. But I feel like some of you this weekend, you just need to stay. You just need to sit here for a few minutes. 
And you just need to personally go before God. Nobody's going to come up and bother you or try to pray with you. You just need to go before God and say, God, life is not like I thought it would be. But I accept it as coming from your loving, sovereign hand. And that's where my hope is. Father, as we sang earlier, you're a good, good father. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. Father, in this moment, make that reality and that truth explode in our hearts and minds. Where we came up with this Americanized Christianity, where we bought into the big lie that once we became your follower, everything turned out great. Forgive us for buying into that. Because, Father, if you took your son to a cross, even as he pled in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, then who are we to think that we will not have some tough times and some incredible storms on our life journey? And, Father, we'll be defeated and we'll be angry and often we'll turn our backs on you unless we can see it coming from the hand of a loving, sovereign Father who is full of mercy and grace that's renewed every morning. Help us to understand that's where our hope comes from. Not in our circumstances, not in our wealth, not in our success, but our hope is in you. May we learn that valuable lesson from David. And Father, I pray as those stay right now in their seats and they just, they just work through this tough lesson with you and find peace there. In your name we pray.